Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is June the 1st, 2020. This is episode 2,671 of the Survival Podcast. Again, it is a Monday. We usually do a feedback show today. We're sort of, kind of, in a way, roundabout doing a feedback show. We're actually going to talk about food, food storage, and growing our own food today. And I have a really combined weird reason, I guess. What part of it's not weird and the other part of it is, or unique reason, or unusual reason. It might even sound somewhat spiteful. It's it's not really. It's just having a decision made based on a mindset that I know is flawed. So I've been walking around the property a lot this morning, looking at all of the, the different things that we've done this year to make sure that we have more food than ever for ourselves. And as I do that, I, I have a feeling of unbelievable gratitude for what we have. And a lot of it is because of my physical hard work, and a lot of it is because of the work that I've done over the years building this show and building businesses and being able to afford to do what we've done. But I have an incredible feeling of gratitude, not just for you guys who have supported me so that I was able to do that, but for the food itself <clears throat> and for the systems that produce food itself. And what does this have to do with you know feedback and, and, and wrong thought? Of course, what everybody's thinking about today, and we're going to talk about it briefly, is the rioting that's going on. And I got an email from a guy, I guess it's because of the show I did Thursday, about new plants. And this is what he said. Jack, I don't mean to sound negative, but our country is burning down. I know you get excited about new plants. We need to concentrate on proven things now. Time to get back to the basics. I have to say, as, I, as I've tried to kind of steer you toward today, I was uh, kind of up in the air about this show. I didn't know whether to go ahead and do a feedback show, actually cover the riots, or do this, this show that I wanted to do, that I was thinking about putting off till tomorrow on, on the basic, the stuff that everybody grows or can grow. The stuff that's growing really well right now for people, or soon will be, and then how to take the bounty that comes from it and make sure that you don't just get it through the summer, but you then store it into fall and winter and into next spring so that you can become self-sufficient and more self-reliant as well when it comes to your food. And this really pushed me, pushed me over the edge because I have to say, if growing your own food and preserving your own food is not the basics and proven what is. Will, will I help by adding to the chorus and screaming about who's right and who's wrong and all this when almost everybody involved with it actually is wrong, in my opinion? Almost every single angle that this is being approached with right now is wrong. But my bigger thing is... Do you, Do you think that anything that I say is going to make less riots? Do you think that anything that I am going to say is going to put together a group of people who will go stop the riots? Do you think that anybody who isn't already willing to defend their home and their property and their family 
and doesn't already have a way to do that and a plan to do so if necessary is going to all of a sudden become that because of something that I say on the air. I mean, in the end, I have rules for riots. These are my rules for riots. Uh, and, and, and I'm going to be very personal about what my rules are because the, the closest big city to me is Fort Worth. And it hasn't seen anywhere near the problems that most of the other large cities have, uh, not even as much as our sister city, Dallas. Dallas has had much bigger problems than Fort Worth. But even with that said, number one rule, I'm not going to go there while this is going on. Fort Worth is about 20, 25 minutes from me. I'm just not going to go there. You know, if I feel like going out to eat, we go somewhere uh, uh, you know, north instead of south. We're just not going there. Rule number two. Uh, if it comes to it, I am defended. I am prepared to defend my property, as I always am. Rule number three, see rules number one and two. That's it. There's nothing for me to do. There's nothing for me to do. I'm not going to call my congressman and tell them that they're supposed to work harder on one thing or the other. I'm not going to call my governor and tell him what he's supposed to do about putting down riots. I'm not going to scream and yell at people who aren't going to listen to me anyway. Everybody's made their decision up in this. So I'm going to focus on what I can actually do. And what I can actually do is I can work harder to make my position more resilient than it already is. And that's what I'm going to encourage you to do. If you live in a downtown urban area, I don't know why. I should be able to live wherever I want. I agree. I still don't know why. If you live in downtown Minneapolis where this shit's blowing up right now, I don't know why you were there in the first place. All the places you could live, you want to live in the middle of an urban center where this kind of shit always happens first and generally is isolated to. Go look at where this is all going on. It's not just in these cities. It's in very specific areas of these cities that no one is surprised by unless, well, they don't pay attention to life. So, yeah, we're going to talk about... I'm going to give you why it happens today... And I'm going to answer the question that you keep hearing people ask in social media. Why do people burn down their own cities? My God, that's a simple answer. And then we're going to turn to actually nothing to do with riots, but everything to do with taking care of yourself, feeding yourself, and taking care of your family, knowing where your food comes from, with a great quote of the day. That's what we're going to do today. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor day number one today is Ridge Wallet. When you do go somewhere... There are certain stuff you need to take with you so that you can you know, manage your life and pay for things. And, and doing that today is actually taking a risk. Everywhere you go, especially with credit cards, IDs, etc., we have all these little RFID tags in them. And people can actually buy like an $18 part off of eBay and make a wand and walk past your handbag or your, your pocket and just wand your ass. You'll never even know it. And gee, guess what? They got all the information off all your cards. That's how, that's how insane... Modern technology has become. Well, guess what? If you put your stuff inside a Ridge wallet, that's not happening. That's just not happening. It's shielded. It's not going to happen. And it's cool, and it helps you minimalize. Check them out today at RidgeWallet.com. Next up today, Backwoods Home Magazine. I have been a fan of Backwoods Home Magazine since 1993. They were the first magazine as a grown-ass man that I subscribed to after I got out of the Army, and I've been reading them ever since. And I have to say, their latest edition is amazing. I was a little bit unhappy. I was a lot unhappy when the magazine went away for a while. They decided to stop producing it. And um, when it came back, I was really happy, except they decided to do it as a quarterly and four times a year. I'm, 
I'm not a fan of quarterly magazines as a whole. Generally, it's because there's not enough substance in them to make it a whole quarter. Um, this edition that I just got has totally sold me on quarterlies. If all quarterlies are going to be like this most recent edition, oh my God, this is like a book, very topical to what's going on. And you know what? It was talking about all of the stuff related to COVID, but it was 100% what you could do, including feeding yourself. I, I've come to expect nothing less from Backwoods Home except excellence, and yet they still have exceeded my expectations this time around. Check them out if you've never been a subscriber before, backwoodshome.com. With that, let's get into this. I, yeah, I, you know, I'll give you guys a little bit on the riots. I, I understand that you want to hear my opinion, um, but I'm going to start out with my opinion doesn't really matter. So before you get upset about any of my opinions, my opinion doesn't really matter. My opinion is not going to change the course of a riot anywhere in this country. And my opinion will only impact your choices as to what you do is if you choose to use my opinion as part of your decision-making process. So there's no reason for you to get mad about my opinions. But here's what riots, in my opinion, teach us. Most people are assholes. And the less they have to lose, the bigger the asshole they are. You don't see people that have successful, thriving businesses out there burning down other people's businesses. You don't see people that have much of anything out there doing it, doing this stuff. They teach us to get the hell away from city centers. Well, this has been something I've been on for since I started. City centers are not places to live for human beings. I don't even want to work there. I don't want to spend any time more there than I have to. And it's not just because I don't like it. It's because it doesn't make any sense to me. High-density civilization has brought us most misery throughout humankind. You don't see riots out in the country. And it's not just because you'll get shot. That's a reason. But you just don't. People don't riot anywhere but cities. And it's because we stop acting like human beings because rioting is not innate human behavior. It is not a way that human beings naturally behave. And they also teach us to pay attention to what's going on and avoid problem areas. So you don't need to be anywhere this shit's going on right now. And if you say, but I have to work. Not today, you don't. Not today, you don't. No, you don't. Well, I have to go through there to get to where I work, even though where I work's not there. No, you don't. There's always a way around. If you're late, you're late. It doesn't matter. You know what? Your boss might ball you out for this, but you're not going to get fired because you avoided a riot. And you're not going to get fired because you avoided going to work downtown where a riot was going on or potentially would be. And if you do, you're going to own the company after a lawyer gets done with them. So they teach us to stay the hell away from problem areas and to be alert so we know where they are. And mostly they teach us to see to our own shit. And I hate to be that blunt sometimes, but I have to be here. Because what I'm talking about today mostly is feeding ourselves. And there's nothing more basic than that. But if you really want to know why people will quote-unquote burn down their own cities, I mean, I keep hearing that. How does burning down your own city, why would people burn down their own city? They don't have anything to lose. This is a simple answer that the TV won't get. I've not heard a single one of these talking head morons. I haven't heard a single person. Regardless of their opinion on this, I haven't heard the people that are blathering on about peaceful protesters. I haven't heard the people that are actually justifying the riots. I haven't heard people that are decrying the riots. I haven't heard people who are upset with the police. I don't, haven't heard people that are backing the police. I haven't heard a single person 
make the simple, obvious observation. People behave this way when they feel they have nothing to lose. That's all there is to it. If, if you really want to understand why someone would go out in the streets and start harming people and harming property in their own backyard in a way that will not help them. Because let me tell you this, the people that believe that this will accomplish anything are delusional. This has never accomplished anything. And you can look at past riots, and you could say, well, it made, no, it didn't make a difference. The changes that came came in spite of rioting, not because of them. The reason a person will go into a street, a block from where they live, and throw a flaming bottle full of gasoline through a window and set a building on fire that very may, well may spread to where they live and burn their own home down is they don't value what they have at all. They feel they have no stake, they feel they are not being heard, and they feel if they lose everything, they've effectively lost nothing. They feel they have no hope and no stake and no benefit through conforming to that which they've told they need to do. And yet, by lashing out, that they lose nothing. You throw them in jail, they don't care, they've been to jail. Most of them, most of them doing this shit, they've been to jail plenty of times. They know what it's like, they're okay with it, put me in jail again. And they feel they're going to get away with it anyway. But that's why. So, that brings us to our bridge where we transition over to things that are a better topic. And what I want to start off with there is a thing that actually addresses this this problem, but also tells us what we need to do for ourselves, assuming others are not yet ready to come along with it. This is by Bill Mollison. Bill Mollison said, we're only truly secure when we can look into our own, we can look out of our kitchen window and see food growing and our friends working nearby. And let me tell you something, people that can look out of their window of where they live and see food, their food that supplies them and their neighbors with sustenance growing, and they see friends working. Whatever working means in that context, it could be working a garden, it could be doing their daily job, it could be minding their children. They don't riot. No matter how angry they are, they don't riot. They don't burn down buildings. And the more you have of that, the more stable a society becomes. If you want to know why you have the unrest that you do, why you have a lack of stability that you do, it's because people are not self-sufficient, self-reliant. And they don't feel secure because of that. They don't know why. They would never explain it to you that way. But this is basic human psychology. When you put people under stress and they feel they have nothing to lose, they will behave in an inherently inhuman manner and do things that you can't understand why any person would ever do them. And let me tell you something, so you can truly understand this. So would you. No, I wouldn't. You don't know what you would do. You don't know what you would do. You have no idea what you would do if you were in a situation where you grew up the way some of these people grew up. And you never got out of it. Because I know some of you go, oh, I grew up that way. Well, I got out of it. What if you didn't? What if for whatever reason, whatever path led you away, you never found it? And you didn't think you could ever find one. And you'd become convinced there was no way out. 
and then you watch something like you just saw. And you think they're going to get away with it again. And then somebody around you picks up a rock and hurls it through a window, and they get away with that. And then the mom mentality takes over. You want to change the world for the better. And I'm not fanciful. I'm not going to say that this is going to happen overnight if everybody puts a garden in. I'm, I, I, I'm not that foolish. But the people that do will generally stay the hell out of things like this. And that's all we can focus on. That's all we control. And that's all we influence. Nothing I say or do will change what happens in Minneapolis or any other major city in the United States in the next week or two. But I'm going to tell you this. What will happen is this will burn itself out like it always has. It's another American revolution. It's this. It's an insurrection. It's a civil war. No, it's not. You are either very young, if you believe that, or you have a very bad memory. And with that, let's move on to better things. Let, let, let's move on to how we can become truly secure, which is to be able to look out of our own backyard and see our food growing. But what makes us even more secure is that is only one portion of what can feed us, that we're able to actually have food in our homes, and we know for a time we'll be well-fed. And that means if we're going to grow food, one of the things that we really need to think about is storage. And one of the reasons I've always been such a fan of gardening, it's not just because I enjoy doing it, it's not just because the food tastes better, it's not just because it's fun, it's not good, it's just because it's good exercise, it's not good just because it's good emotional um, therapy, it's not just because it's good for the earth, it's not just good because it's good for your family, it's not just good, I mean, there's a million reasons. But one is I am first and foremost a prepper. I've been a prepper since before I knew the word prepper. When I grew up in rural Pennsylvania, everybody was a prepper because we were all fairly poor. But we didn't have the instability that we have in the world in the cities. And it was going on. I mean, don't think the 70s were exactly a peaceful time. I mean, really, they weren't. There was a lot of this. As I said, if you think this is a unique time in history, you, you have either a very short memory or you're very young and never cracked a book. But places like I'm talking about where I grew up, were relatively stable even though people were poor because people didn't feel that they had nothing and no hope. And we didn't have drug problems. The very place I'm talking about growing up today is now ground zero for the heroin and meth epidemics in the United States. And you know what? The last time I was there was almost 20 years ago. And most of the gardens were gone. I don't think it's a coincidence. So once we garden and we put that stability... The next thing we need to do is to put that food up. And that's where I was going with this. As a, as a, as a, a prepper, as I become, became conscious of that term, as I left that place and went somewhere where it wasn't just what everybody did, and I realized I was different, and I, I started making sure that, well, if something goes wrong, I could take care of myself, and the people thought that was odd. And I found the concept of prepping was actually the way I lived my whole life. And I, I've always focused on growing and foraging my own food. I realized what a perfect entry that is to prepping because the first thing that happens when you begin to produce food or forage food in excess of your ability to immediately consume it is you don't want to waste it. So you start figuring out how to store it. So once you figure out how to store it, you start storing what you eat and eating what you store. Well, since you do that, you've moved into the world of prepping. So I see gardening and foraging 
and then preserving that food as the entry into prepping. And the more people you can get doing that, the more people you can get prepping. So let's talk about some methods. And I can't give like step-by-step instructions on this. I want to give you a general awareness so you can think about this and what you grow and how you can store your own food. Probably the oldest method of food stores there is, especially for vegetables and and, and meats as well, is sun-drying or just drying. Now, I'm actually separating that from dehydrating today. And I'm doing that because I consider if you just hang stuff up, whether it's the shade or the sun, and dry it to be drying, and I'm for, for the purpose of this discussion, because they are both a form of dehydration. We're removing water. But I consider dehydration for today's discussion when you use some sort of a contraption. And I wanted to delineate here, because there's times where it makes a really a lot of sense to use a contraption, whether it's an electric dehydrator, solar dehydrator, whatever, And there's times where it really doesn't make any sense at all because it's not necessary. And that has to do some some with climate, but a lot to do with food types. So if you have really humid climate, you know, you may need to use some sort of a contraption or at least a fan where if you have a relatively dry climate, simply hanging things up. But there's things that fit this better. So when I'm talking about that today, all I'm talking about is something like if we were going to do herbs, for instance, and I take a big bundle of, of mint and I tie a string on it hanging from a tree. That, that to me, is drying. If I live in a really dry climate, I slice a bunch of vegetables up of some sort and just lay them out in the sun, and they dry. Maybe enhanced with some salt for some and some other ones, that's a real bad idea. Because you don't end up with dry, then you end up with leather. Maybe you want to. But all of that I see is being drying. Where dehydration is when we get into, especially in the modern world, we get into things like uh, an Excalibur dehydrator. And when we get into dehydration, we have to ask ourselves some questions. And one of those questions is often, and and I guess this would be true of sun drying as well, um, but one of those questions we really need to answer, especially when we get in the world of contraptions because it opens up so much more potential for us, is do we need to blanch? Blanching is where we actually par-cook an item, and then we stop the process, generally with ice water, but it can be done just with cool water. And we do that because, and this is going to apply to the next method of preservation as well, you have enzymic action in some foods, and if you don't destroy that enzymic action, when you then either dry or freeze the food, it will ruin it. Uh, A good example of this is green beans. Many, many years ago, I grew some stuff in my my grandma's backyard. This is my Florida grandparents. And uh, we had this bird garden that I built, basically. These birds would come in and eat. The bird seed my grandmother put out there, and bird seed started growing. So I started, like, putting rocks around it and making it all cool. And this is when I was, like, eight years old. This is what I'm saying, but this is a intrinsic part of who I am to be able to cultivate food and want to cultivate food. But I was cultivating food for the birds because I noticed that the, some of the seed would grow up and like the, the millet would have little millet heads and then the birds would eat that. And as that started happening, I realized things were actually growing better and better where these birds were because birds were pooping there. I started planting things like green beans and, and carrots and stuff like that. Well, so the green beans, I started picking them and we started eating them. We had too many of my grandmother so we could freeze them. Now this grandmother, this is my Italian grandmother, She knew a lot about cooking, and she knew a lot about gardening. She did not know a lot about food preservation, especially when it came to freezing. So we froze the green beans. 
We took the green beans out and we cooked them. They looked beautiful, bright green beans. And then when you tried to eat one, it was hard like a stick. Didn't taste good. And so we cooked it longer and we cooked it longer and we cooked it longer. No matter how much you cooked it, it stayed bright green. It never got that pale color that when you overcook a bean it does. But it also just got more and more stick-like. And it never was good to eat ever again. And then we, we asked some people that we knew and they told us about blanching. So when you come to freezing or dehydration, you need to find out whether the particular thing that you're doing needs to be blanched. And a lot of things don't, and a lot of things do. You have, do not need to blanch a tomato. You do not need to blanch a pepper. You do need to blanch a green bean. You do need to blanch broccoli. And I'll, I'll, you know, I'll just say from that point forward, all you need to do is you need to check. And basically the rule goes like this. If you would blanch it to freeze it, then you need to blanch it to dehydrate it. And if you don't need to blanch it to freeze it, then you don't need to blanch it to dehydrate it. So you, if, you, if you're having trouble finding out, check into if I'm freezing this thing, what do I need to do? Dehydration and sun drying are great because they are incredible at creating a long-term stable storage environment. If you have the right environment, which can be as simple as a, a ball jar filled up and a lid on it with dehydrated vegetables, you can store almost infinitely. Almost. I'm st I still have some peppers from when we lived in Arkansas, and I've lived in this property that I'm in now for seven years. And every once in a while, I'll do something with them, and they're still good. I mean, that's, that's a long time to just be sitting in a ball jar. Now, I did do what's called dry can those. I have a canner uh, for dry canning, which basically you put those jars with everything inside of them. You put a, the lid on real loose. You suck all the air out. It's a, basically a vacuum pump attached to a pressure cooker that's been rigged to do this. You suck all the air out, and then you shut down the pump, and you real quick open it. There's a valve, and, you, and it seals, right? But you don't, you don't have to do that with well-dried or well-dehydrated vegetables, fruits, herbs, etc. It is probably the most ancient form of preservation, and yes, it's used with meats as well, jerky, biltong, etc., other forms of curing, but we're talking about vegetables today. The next one is freezing. And again, this is where we need to look at blanch and freeze if blanch is required. You're storing peppers in the freezer, you don't need to blanch them. You're doing a green bean, you do need to do it. Freezing is a, a thing that a lot of people shy away from. And they shy away from it because, well, what if the grid goes down? Well, let me just rephrase the question. Well, what if the grid doesn't go down? Just first off, what if the grid doesn't go down? Well, then you've, you've failed to use a completely valid storage technology because something might happen. So then my next question for you is, is there a way to mitigate that risk? And there is. It's called a generator and gasoline. And we won't go much deeper than that today, but unless we're talking grid down forever, and in that case, start eating the food out of the freezer as fast as possible then that freezer is a very valid method of storing your food. And I imagine most of you have quite a bit of meat in that freezer. Now, some people don't do this simply because they only own a single fridge and freezer, and there's not a lot of space in there. And that I understand. If you have the space, the beauty of freezing your produce, it is the way to most approximate fresh. I'm telling you right now, if you, if you look, let's use green beans again as an example. If I go out right now, and pick some green beans off my bush, cut them up, and I stir-fry them for you tonight. And I also take some green beans 
out of my freezer that have been properly blanched and frozen, and I mix them together on a plate, you will never in a million years be able to say this green bean was frozen and this one wasn't. You will not be able to tell the difference. I'm not going to say there's no difference at all and that some person who's like a sommelier, who's like the person that can tell you this wine was made in 1996 and it came off the west. I mean, there are some people with that weird ability. It ain't you and it ain't me. And if you are that person, you probably don't listen to this show. There may be somebody somewhere who can do it, but I'm going to tell you 99.9% of people would never be able to tell the difference. And there's a lot of value to that because if I, if I dehydrate that bean, it will never taste like fresh again. If I can that bean, I'm not saying it's not good, but it will never taste like fresh again. If I pickle it, it tastes pickled. If I lacto-fermented, it tastes lacto-fermented. And it is the kind of vegetable that I have to do something to. There's some that we don't have to do a lot to. We can just kind of keep them in a cool, dry environment. But these are things that this needs to be done with. The most important thing when it comes to freezing, especially when you're going to do a blanch and freeze, you're taking a vegetable and you're either steaming it or boiling it. And you, you, what you need to do is look up a time because different vegetables need a different amount of time that they're exposed to that heat. And the length of time in boiling water versus steam is also different. So you look that up. But once that's done, either way, it's, it's very wet. So if I do this with a couple pounds of green beans and I take those couple pounds of green beans and I put them in a vacuum seal bag or even a good old gallon Ziploc bag and I push the air out of the Ziploc bag or I suck the air out of the vacuum seal bag and I put them in the freezer, it's perfectly fine. They'll be great when I take them out, but I better want to eat all two pounds of them. Or I better freeze them in individual serving sizes if I do that. And the problem with that is do you always know what an individual serving size is going to be? Because do you always cook for all four members of your family? Do they not? Sometimes the kids eat out. Sometimes do not friends come over? Do you have odd numbers of people? Do some nights you want a whole side of green beans, and some nights you just want a handful to throw in a mixed vegetable stir fry? You see how that all works? So you do what commercial freezing operations do, and it's called flash freezing. And all you need to do is get some way that you can spread out your produce. So take a cookie tray, you know, a baking tray, and put down a piece of nonstick foil on it or a piece of parchment paper and spread out whatever you've just, your broccoli, your beans, whatever, onto a single layer and set it in the freezer until they're frozen solid. Then throw them in a bag, seal the bag up, and throw it back in the freezer. And when you open that bag, you'll be able to reach in just like the green giant stuff you buy in the store and pull out a handful. Next up, canning. And when I say canning, in this instance, I'm talking about acid water bath canning and pressure canning. And it's important that we understand the difference between those two. Some vegetables are really high in acid. We're, even if we're not doing some sort of a pickling, we're not adding vinegar, there's enough acid in them that we can water bath can them. Tomatoes would be an example of this. And a lot of things that we would make with tomatoes in them would be an example of this. Some vegetables, go back to green beans here. If you take a green bean and you water bath can it, which means the can's sitting in water, the lid's above water, the lid of the canner is just sitting there and steam can escape and it's not under pressure. And we follow a recipe and we get to the end. Since those beans are not high in acid, it's subject to botulism. And because it's subject to botulism, when we can it, we put it in an oxygen-free, wet environment. We are, that's literally what botulism wants. 
Botulism wants no oxygen, and it wants wet. If And botulism is one of the... Actually, botulism itself is not very toxic. Okay? The actual organism of botulism is not very toxic. As it reproduces, it produces one of, if not the most toxic substances known to man. If a person has a high enough dose of what they call botulism toxin, there's almost nothing that can be done to save their life. It's, it's that bad. And it needs certain temperature range, moisture, no oxygen. That when, If you take and you can a green bean with water bath canning, you've literally created a nirvana for botulism. And unlike a lot of other things you can get in your canned goods, it doesn't create like a bulging can. It can look perfectly fine, smell perfectly fine, taste perfectly fine, and you eat it, and you get sick and or die. So if we're going to can a green bean, we need to add acid, or we need to do what's called pressure canning. When we do pressure canning, we're using a pressure canner. And when we pressurize steam, the temperature goes much higher than 212 degrees. It exceeds the survival temperature of botulism, and it kills it dead. Now, this is something you should know. This is not, hey, as long as you're going to do this, go ahead and water bath can things you shouldn't water bath can. That's not what I'm saying at all. However, if you took something that had a problem with how it was canned and you boil it for 10 minutes to a full rolling boil for 10 minutes, you're probably not going to get botulism because, you'll again, the botulism itself, what people will say is you can't kill botulism at 212 degrees. No, but you can boil off the toxin. The toxin is quite volatile at 212 degrees. So if you have any concerns about a canned object, the best thing to do is throw it away. But if you were in a situation where you had to rely on it for some reason, you're going to starve without it, boil it for at least a full 10-minute rolling boil. Uh, and it's probably not a bad idea in most canned goods to bring them to a boil because you're not going to overcook them because since you've canned something, it's already overcooked. It's why it's one of my least favorite methods of preserving vegetables. Not that I won't use it, it's just my least favorite method. Next is quick pickling. I'm going to lump pickling in this concept of making and simmering and water bath canning something in vinegar part of the canning discussion today. When I'm talking about quick pickling, I'm talking about having a quick recipe and you take and you make a brine and you put your vegetables in it, and you pour your brine over top of it, and it's pretty much done. You let it cool down, and you have a quick pickle. That will keep in the refrigerator a hell of a lot longer um, than it would if you didn't do that to it. So that's quick pickling. And there's a lot of ways to do quick pickling. Um, one of the ways I like to do quick pickling is I'll get a jar of something that's pickled. Let's say just pickle chips. Uh, so... Pickles, pickles, right? So for, for putting on burgers and stuff like that. And when I'm done, you know, there's just half a jar full of brine, pickle brine in there. Well, I mean, if I have some garlic around, I'll just throw it in there. Don't do it. Just throw it in there and put it in the refrigerator for a day. That's one method of a quick pickle. Another method would be to take that brine and actually contribute it to a brine that you make, so make it an additional component to a brine, and then pour it over things. But that, that's, that's what I mean when I say quick pickling. And quick pickling is best for making this thing last a little longer than it would otherwise, but not really great 
for long-term storage. We want to move more to a canning type of pickling if we're going to do that. And then we got lacto-fermentation. Lacto-fermentation is also a very ancient form of preservation. It certainly, um, it's also known as lac lacto-pickling or fermentation pickling or, or what have you. Uh, and I guess it kind of is. Uh, but it definitely predates storing food through a vinegar type of pickling. Whenever we get acid high enough, we reduce the propensity for bad things that we don't want to eat to cause us problems and spoil our food. With, with a vinegar pickle of any kind, we're using acid in the vinegar itself. Acetic acid, I believe, is what it is. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. Uh, but vinegar, obviously, is acidic. It's extremely acidic. And that acid, that low pH helps to protect and preserve the food, especially if we combine it with something else like salt and or, in certain situations, sugar. When we do lacto-fermentation, the place we're not going to use sugar, we are going to use salt, what we're doing is we're encouraging the growth of lactobacillus, lactobacterium, and they, ha they produce a lactic acid. That's that tang. So if you've ever had real sauerkraut, sauerkraut's a perfect example. We can shred cabbage, and we can use a vinegar brine to make a sauerkraut that's very similar to this type of kraut you might buy in a can at the store. Or we can do a lacto-fermentation, and both of them will have a tang. It's different. But the tang in the fermented version is going to come from the lactic acid that's produced during the fermentation. What we do not want to do, because we can use sugar in some pickles that we make with a vinegar, We do not want to use sugar in lacto-fermentation. If you give a lactic fermentation sugar, instead of just lactic bacterium becoming active, you will get active yeast. And when active yeast gets in touch with sugar, they have a party and they make alcohol. And I don't think you're going to get very good results if you try to make an alcoholic sauerkraut. If you want alcohol with your sauerkraut, put the sauerkraut on a bratwurst and have a beer. Okay? Um... Lacto-fermentation is dead simple. The only thing you need for lacto-fermentation is salt and maybe water. And the reason I say maybe water, let's go back to sauerkraut. So if we shred up cabbage, we pack it into a vessel with some salt on it, and we cover it, it will release enough of its own liquid to form a brine. We don't need to add water. Some other vegetables, in, other, in order to get enough of a liquid, we will need to add some water to them. Um, I have a great book on lacto-fermentation I'll link to in today's show notes if you want to know more about how to do it. But I'll tell you that the, the, the easy thing to remember with lacto-fermentation is a simple little rhyme. Keep it under the brine and everything will be fine. So if you, are, if you keep, if you use the right amount of salt for a lacto-fermentation and all of your vegetables stay under the level of the fluid, in, keep it under the brine, it will generally work out pretty well. You'll create an environment where anything that's actually bad for you, that can harm you, can't live. Acid's too high and salt's too high. It doesn't mean you can't ruin it. It doesn't mean you can't make it taste like crap, but you ain't going to die from it. In-ground storage or improvised root cellaring, and I would consider regular root cellaring part of this as well, but there's a couple different ways we can do this. One would be some vegetables that are tubers. When winter comes, we can just put a whole bunch of mulch on top of them and leave them in there and take them out as we need them. I do this with sweet potatoes every year. It might not work in all climates. It works in mine. So that's one way we could do it. The other way we can do it, I also, some of my sweet potatoes I grow in containers. 
And even though the climate works to where I can store them in the ground outside in this, this environment, um, in containers, because you have the cold right against the wall of the container, I'll often have, if I've tried to do that, I've had a lot of them go bad on me and rot. So if you take them out and you put them into some sort of dry medium like sawdust or uh, what I've used is dry straw, five-gallon bucket, dry straw, put down a layer of straw, put down a layer of sweet potato, layer of straw, layer of sweet potato, layer of straw, layer of sweet potato like that, and I take that bucket and I have a great big uh, chest freezer that I've converted to a keezer, which is basically so I can have homemade beer on tap. But I have plenty of space in there beyond the kegs. And so I'll set that bucket in there, and it doesn't ever freeze in there, but it stays refrigerator temperature. And those potatoes stay great. I've done Jerusalem artichokes the same way, etc. And if you just put them into a refrigerator, they won't store. So there's a lot of different ways you could do that. You can create your own root cellar. You can create like a micro root cellar. Anything that keeps things from freezing has enough airflow. And there's a lot of different ways you can do that. But that's what I would call in-ground storage, improvised root cellary. Um, and then I got one today that really didn't apply to what we're talking about today. But it is something you can do. And it's really great for greens in colder climates. So it's what I call cold season stasis. That sounds like some kind of stasis. That's like how you send people to planets that are 8,000 you know, light years away. So they're in stasis until they get there and the computer wakes them up. Um, no, not quite. Not, not for this. What we're going to do is actually similar, though. We are slowing them down. It's not a full stasis. So a lot of like greens that grow really fast, if we grow them in an environment and then we move them into a protected environment that's still cold, like a greenhouse in a cold climate, that's not a... Not a really, that's like not a heated greenhouse. What you'll have is spinaches and lettuces and things like that that will stay about like they are while still planted for a very long time and grow very, very slowly. So we're kind of keeping it alive in a slow growth stasis environment. That's another strategy that you can employ. And then there's things that I call the almost nothing method. And yeah, this is a thing. And when we go through things today, we'll talk about a couple things that are pretty much that. Like, Maybe you do a little bit of drying or a little bit of a procedure, but basically the thing we're talking about just kind of takes care of itself. So with that in mind, let's go through 12 things that you can grow really easily. Most of them are really popular and some methods of storage, now that we have already covered the methods of storage. So the number one vegetable grown in America is not really a vegetable, it's a fruit, the tomato. More people grow tomatoes than any other single thing, in spite of the fact that it is difficult to grow in a lot of climates due to blight, for seam wilt, and things like that. Um, it's one of the more frustrating vegetables for some people, too, but almost everybody that has a garden tries to grow tomatoes. And many people do really well and grow lots of tomatoes. The tomato is popular simply because so many methods work well for it. The tomato is great in the right climates for sun drying. And that can be as simple as cut the tomato in half or into quarters, or in the slices, and lay it on a screen in the sun. If your climate is dry enough for it. If you otherwise, like my climate, I could get by with that, but I have a dehydrator, it just works so much better. This is the number one reason I grow cherry tomatoes. And my method for dehydrating cherry tomatoes is real simple. I cut them in half, throw them in a dehydrator until they're dry, which usually takes about 12 to 14 hours. That's it. I take the tomatoes then I put them in the ball jars, and I label them, and I put them on the shelf. That is my go-to for tomatoes. I grow tons of cherry tomatoes, and I do get to a time of year where the blight really gets bad. And let me tell you my method for dealing with that. 
I grow highly productive cherry tomatoes. Cherry tomatoes that are just like gobs and gobs and gobs of fruit. They will get to a point where the blight is hitting them so hard that keeping them alive any longer doesn't make any other sense. The best thing to do at that point is to prune those vines out and grow something else for the rest of the year. Maybe start some tomatoes and do some fall tomatoes with as long as my growing season is. But it just gets to that point. Usually at that point in the year, my, I will have tons of green tomatoes on those, on those plants. I'll cut all those clusters off, and I'll set them. Usually I set them right in the, like on the ground around where they were growing. It's usually a great place to do it, or a shelf or somewhere, and they'll ripen. They might take anything from a couple days to a couple weeks to ripen. And as they ripen, I just take those clusters in, and I treat them the same way I do the fresh tomatoes off the vine. I cut them in half, stick them in the dehydrator, dehydrate them. And then cooking with them is as simple as taking them out and throw them into something, as long as there's liquid in there that you're cooking. I cook, um, I do a lot with uh, riced cauliflower, which is basically little tiny diced up cauliflower. Uh, kind of looks like rice, stands in for rice well, made me a believer in cauliflower. First form I've used cauliflower in that I like. But I've done a lot of like kind of Spanish rice with using the cauliflower rice. You can use it regular rice. And I just, you know, whatever liquid I'm cooking, when I add that, I just throw the tomatoes in. And the beauty of dehydrated vegetables is the flavor comes out with the liquid as you're cooking it. So it infuses whatever you're cooking with. Stews, soups, whatever, just throw it in. It's easiest. Tomatoes are great for freezing as well. Anything you're going to cook with or you want more of a fresh type tomato for cooking, um, just dice them up, put them in bags and freeze them. There's, there's not much more to it. I know a lot of people peel tomatoes when they're going to do that. My opinion about peeling tomatoes is life is too short to peel tomatoes. Um, with canning... One of the reasons tomatoes are so popular with homesteaders is you can water bath can them. They're acidic enough to do that with, and they can be combined with other things. So they're good for canning. Quick pickling, I've never eaten a pickled tomato. Uh, I Hold on. Hold on. That's wrong. Um, I have had green pickled tomatoes. I've never had a ripe pickled tomato in a true pickled environment. But my grandmother was big on chow chow. Um like most Yukis and Eastern Europeans in the central PA area. And uh, so green tomatoes did go in the chow chow, which was pickled. So I'll, I'll correct that. But uh, not really a pickled thing in my opinion. I've never done lacto-fermentation with tomatoes, though I have had a lacto-fermented ketchup. They used tomatoes, and it was really good. But that's not something I have a lot of experience with. In-ground storage, cold season stasis, almost nothing. Not working for your tomatoes. But if of the, the kind of active storage methodology, there's almost no method that won't work for tomatoes. Again, that's one of the reasons they're so popular. They're so easy to store in so many ways. Peppers. Peppers are something you know everybody can or should grow, in my opinion, unless you just don't like them. And, of course, we have sweet and hot peppers. My go-to for peppers is freezing. And the reason I like freezing them is it's no work other than to cut them up. And as long as you're cooking with them, You lose nothing. A pepper, I have not yet found a method to preserve a pepper where you then take the pepper and put it in your salad and it takes anything like the day you picked it and cut it up and put it in your salad. There has to be something you're doing with it. Now, pickled peppers can have some pretty interesting uses in salads and things like that, but in general, peppers are forever altered if you are going to preserve them, in my opinion anyway. Um... But with freezing, you cut the size of pepper you want. You put it in a Ziploc bag. I don't even vacuum seal peppers. 
because there's just no need to. Push the air out of the bag, seal the bag up, throw it in the freezer. That is my go-to because it's so damn easy. They don't need to be blanched. Um, dehydration would probably be my number two for peppers. Again, they don't need to be blanched. Cut them up to an appropriate size and dehydrate them. I love making pepper powders for, especially hot peppers, for like chili powders and things like that. I never make one until I need it, though. So last year, for instance, I grew a ton, like I always do, of red jalapenos. I ended up cutting them in a pretty unique way. So you take the jalapeno, instead of cutting rings out of it, I don't really want to take the seeds with my jalapenos. I'm not looking for blazing heat. So what I do is I cut all four sides of the pepper long ways. So they're like a long, thin, a long strip, a quarter of the pepper in a strip. And I dehydrate those. And they end up looking like kind of a really tight, wound, little, mean, fiery chili pepper. And they're great for cooking because they're kind of like a pepper, like a thin julienne pepper at that point. And you can just put them into like chilies and stuff like that. But they're also just, when you when you need like a jalapeno powder, you just take that out and you, you grind it up. I use a coffee grinder for that. So you can make your, you know, your, your, your pepper powders, your powdered uh, dehydrated vegetables and stuff like that. But I always just leave all the vegetables dehydrated and then make those up as you need them. One of my favorite things to do with that, though, is I'll take things like, say, dehydrated spinach, dehydrated peppers, dehydrated tomatoes, and make a com combination powder out of that that then can be used as a base for soups. But what it's really fantastic in is yogurt cheese. So I don't want to go deep into yogurt cheese today, but basically you strain yogurt in uh, a piece of cheesecloth, or I use a, what's called a, a um, what the hell are those things called? Um, I have as an item of the day, uh, flour sack towel. A flour sack towel, and you hang it overnight, and you end up with a kind of a tangy, lacto-fermented cheese, like a spread. Well, any kind of a vegetable powder, and you can use a spicy or just kind of a flavorful mixed into that, Freaking fantastic. And it's a great way to use those dehydrated vegetables. Peppers are great that way. Um, again, peppers are almost as popular as tomatoes because almost everything works. Sun drying in the right climate works. Canning, I love pickled canned peppers. Both hot and just, you know, kind of regular roasted red peppers, things like that. They're just fantastic on pizzas and things like that. Um, with peppers, uh, quick pickling. Lacto-fermentation is fantastic with peppers. Um, I like to make a thing called escabeche, which is usually peppers, like a hot pepper like jalapeno, uh, along with carrot and onion. And then you do a lacto-fermentation version of that, or you can do a pickled version of that, either or. I prefer the lacto-fermentation version of that. But what I'll do with that is I'll use a mix of hot and sweet peppers instead of just the hot peppers. That kind of mellows it out a bit. The carrot does that as well. Um, The other methods really don't work great for peppers. You're not going to in-ground storage it, and you got to do something, and they're not a good cold stasis uh, environment. Beans. I break these into string and dry, and we have different approaches to them. I've kind of gone over the beans a lot already because they're a great example of something that needs to be blanched and bad things happen if you don't. But my number one way to preserve beans, and we're talking about string beans, is blanch and freeze because they taste as fresh as the day you picked them. And, or you did it wrong, or you overcooked them when you took them out, or you when you blanched them, you cooked them too long. Really important, especially with beans, because they retain so much heat that when you get done with the blanch, you immerse them in, hot, in, in, a, uh, in a cold water bath, and I prefer an ice water bath for that, because that will shut down the cooking. We've already deactivated the enzymes. We shut down the cooking. Again, spread them out on a tray, freeze them in a flash freeze, and then put them into your packaging. 
if you're going to can them, you either pressure can them, which I hate. Uh, there's some vegetables I will pressure can. I don't want to pressure can a bean. I just feel like by the time you pressure can a bean, you have so overcooked it that it doesn't really taste like a bean anymore. Um, I do like uh, pickled beans are one of the coolest things in the world. And a good garlic pickled bean, a dill, dill garlic bean, is just an amazing snack. And they're great in Bloody Marys. Uh, so that works. Lacto-fermentation, I've never done it. I have a feeling it worked just fine, but I've never done it. And again, the other methods we talked about today don't really work for beans. Cucumber. Cucumber is one of those things that people always make pickles out of because, well, they're good and they're easy. And there ain't a lot of ways to really preserve a cucumber other than to do that. I've never heard of anybody dehydrating cucumbers. I can't imagine that it works out very good. But I think one of the things that gets really looked over with cucumber is uh, fermented pickles. If you're a person that's not really fond of like a dill pickle, you're not really fond of like a bread and butter sweet pickle, things like that, do give lacto-fermentation of your pickles a try. Uh, I mean, really, it's... It's a totally different situation. And I don't really have any other good methods of preserving cucumbers unless we go to combining them with an acid and canning. So, and then we don't have to necessarily be a pickle. If you make a canned salsa and you combine tomato and cucumber and enough extra acid so that you can pull that off, it is amazing what cucumber and tomato do together. Um, so that would be my other option for you there. Next up, sweet potato. The reason I always suggest people grow sweet potatoes is not just because they are a, a better carbohydrate from a health standpoint than a white potato. It's for someone who tries to stay keto, you can still eat way too many sweet potatoes. Like sweet potatoes is a treat for me. I don't eat tons of them. But if you want to produce potatoes, especially in the South, you can produce a lot more carbohydrates to store easier with a sweet potato. Sweet potato is not a potato. It's a, it's a tuber, but it's not in the same family as a regular potato. So when we do sweet potatoes through the heat of summer, we don't have any of the problems we do growing, let's say, like an Idaho potato or something like that. Um, they grow really fast. They're easy to propagate. They're actually kind of the perfect food for self-sufficiency. We only have to save one or two every year. And we can make enough what we call slips to, to propagate the whole next year's crop. Um, sweet potato is one of those things you can do a lot of different methods for storage, but I believe in doing the least amount for the best result possible. So what I've been able to do in this climate is any place where I've grown sweet potato in the ground, not in a container, is at the end of the season, when the vines die back, put down about three inches of mulch, and then don't do anything. Just don't do anything. And the ground temperature is perfect, and that is a tuber that is designed, as long as it doesn't, the ground doesn't freeze, it's designed to just come back and keep growing next year. It's basically the same family as yams. And there's some, sweet potatoes don't do this, true sweet potatoes don't do this, but there's some yams who grow hundreds of pounds because of this, because they just keep growing. They're a perennial tuber. Um, they're not like a potato. A potato... When it produces plants and it sets new tubers, the original, what we call seed potato, when you dig potatoes up, you'll find it's like hollow. It's spent. It's done its thing and it's over. 
Uh, yams, sweet potatoes, different animal don't do this. So if you live in a climate where this works for you, and what I would suggest to be sure it's going to work for you, harvest most of your sweet potatoes into some other form of storage. Leave some in the ground and try this method and see, you know, go check them two or three months into it and see if they're still good and see if they make it all the way to the next planting. If so, then you know you can just do that. If you lose them, you only lost a couple. I've already talked about my bucket method. That's how I'll take all the ones out of my uh, containers once I feel like... What will happen is I'll pull out one, and then a couple, three weeks later, I'll pull out one or two more, depending on their size. And I'll get to a point in the season where I realize, hey, um, I'm starting to see some degrading in quality here because of the cold and, again, being in containers. And whatever's left, I'll pull them out, and I'll put them in that bucket. So that way I'm only storing what I have to. And I want to make sure I save some of those. So I just take, again, I put a layer of straw down, layer of potatoes, layer of straw, layer of potatoes, layer of straw, layer of potatoes, and set that in the uh, deep freezer, uh, the keyser thing. So if you had a root cell or anything like that, that's really all you would need to do. My neighbor, about the only thing that they ever grew in their garden, which is gone now, they gave up on it, um, was sweet potatoes. That's the only thing I should say they successfully grew. Um, these people do not have a clean thumb. But their sweet potatoes, they, would, they have a... A storm shelter, we call it a Freddy hole here in Texas. Is one of the buried, the ones you just bury, uh, and it's only about half buried because of the way the ground is around here. And they would just put them in trays, kind of stacked, you know, down in there, and they would keep just fine. And they'd always have a bunch of slips that just at a certain point in the year get warm enough, even in there, that they would start sending up shoots, and then they'd pull their slips off and replant them. So. Um, that's, you know, sweet potatoes, really, really easy to store in those ways. Dehydration. You can slice and dehydrate sweet potato. It needs to be blanched, and you can look up how to do that. But I've never done it because it's just too much work for something that doesn't require it. Uh, next up, eggplant. I kind of skipped eggplant. I'm not sure why. Eggplant's one of my favorites. Um, I Until recently, last couple of years, I never grew a lot of eggplant because it seemed like a... a, a a vegetable that just would not store well. I've learned that eggplant dehydrates perfectly fine. And then it can be uh, rehydrated and cooked in stir fries and things like that. It's fantastic. It's absolutely fantastic. You can actually make a, a kind of vegetarian jerky out of eggplant that if you, if you marinate it right, it actually tastes kind of good eating it uh, dehydrated straight. I don't do a lot of that because it doesn't make a lot of sense. And you can blanch and freeze eggplant. It all works out just fine. Um, you're not going to be making your eggplant parmesan or anything like that with it. And there's some things about eggplant that make people think they don't like it. Uh, one is most of your big eggplants that you see in stores, your big kind of bold-looking eggplants, you need to cut those, salt them, and drain them. There's an uh, alkaline substance in them. I can't remember what it's called. But it pretty much if you don't do that with them, no matter how you cook them, they taste like an ashtray. And that's why a lot of people say, well, I, I tried eggplant. Uh, and a lot of times that's why. My favorite varieties of eggplants don't require that treatment. They're the Asian long eggplants, the pinks, the purples, the whites that grow long tubular. You just cut them up into slices. And you, you know, if you're using them fresh, you just throw them right into a stir fry. They taste a little bit sweet. I've, I've not made one of those. Even people have said, I hate eggplant. I've made that for them. 
You know, and they'll say, well, I don't like eggplant. If you do eggplant parmesan, so you cover it in breading and cover it in cheese and fry it and, and then cover it in sauce. Well, of course you don't mind eating it that way. You can't taste it. I, so that's not really my way to go with things either. I don't want to do a lot of work. But with the Asian eggplants, all you have to do is slice them into rings and, and uh, dehydrate them. And they come out just fine recooking with them. And the reason I think that one's so important is most people, especially in southern climates, you can grow more eggplant than you know what to do with. And I've also found out that they're pretty damn good in certain canning recipes and things like that, though I haven't particularly tried it yet. But the Asian eggplant species are great for that. Summer squash. The only good way I know to preserve summer squash, I know two. Freezing, which does not require blanching with squash, and dehydration. Dehydration is my go-to because it is dead-on easy. And for most uses of squash, um, it, you're not, it's not going to affect anything when you rehydrate it, that it's kind of a soft thing because squash is squash. My dad used to call summer squash squish, right, instead of squash. He didn't like it very much because it was so soft. Um, freezing, though, has kind of come back around for me. And, and what happened with that is I got big into keto, and I got big into uh, doing, like, zucchini noodles and stuff like that. And I found that they sell zucchini noodles, at Costco and great big frozen bags of zucchini noodles. And I was like, well, I don't really like making zucchini noodles. I like eating them. So I tried it, and I expected the zucchini that came out of the freezer to, uh, to not be so good. And it I don't really notice any difference at all. So what I do with squash to dehydrate it is I just slice it into discs, just kind of like the eggplant, just throw it in the dehydrator. And that's the easiest thing to do. But you do the same thing and then lay it out on a tray and flash freeze it. And it's great in your soups and your casseroles and stuff like that as well. Those are my two go-to. I've never canned squash, not not summer squash anyway. You can't really see it making a lot of sense. Winter squash, winter squash I put in here specifically because if you grow winter squash and treat it right, it's the one that goes under almost nothing. And I think it's the biggest reason to grow it. Butternuts, Seminole pumpkins, etc. What you do with those is you cut them off the vine and you leave you know a good inch and a half of stem on them. And if you want to, you kind of leave them out in the field in the cool weather for a couple days of season off, and you put them on a shelf somewhere where they stay kind of cool and kind of dry, sort of. And you don't do anything else, and they store just fine. So when people are taking butternut squash and canning it, or pumpkin and canning it, I don't understand. I don't, I don't understand. Unless you don't have space for it whole, I don't understand why you would do such a thing Unless you're looking at for it to be convenience food, and then I understand. So what I mean by that is butternut's pretty hard. If you have to peel it and chop it up and all, it can kind of be a little bit of work. So if you want to take all your work and do it at one time and then can it or freeze it or what, or defry, or dehydrate or whatever, I, I get it. It's not the approach that I take. And I even do this with some things that I grow more for seed than I grow for the squash. So I grow um, the Austrian uh, holus pumpkins. And I grow those mostly for the seed. But why break into that thing and, and have 20 or 30 of them in one day that I'm messing with and drying out seed and everything like that, unless I want the seed to be something that I can transport? Because what I do with them is I store them. And I store them in my, my outbuilding. I just put them on the shelf. And they last easily till spring. And when I want to use the seeds for something... 
I'll cut it in half. And the Austrian pumpkin, I'm not real fond of the flesh. I just don't think it's very high quality at all. So what I'll do is I'll cut it open. I'll take the seeds out, one or two of them, and I usually throw those in the oven and bake them uh, to roast them a little bit at 350 for about 10 minutes. A little salt on them, a little chili spice, what have you. Excellent. And the, the reason I drill the holeless ones is they're holeless. You don't have to seed uh, shell them. You just eat them. So they're fantastic for that. I'll take the pumpkin and I throw it in some boiling water and I boil it till it's soft and I give it to the ducks and the chickens. And it's So I'm growing for me and I'm growing for them at the same time. And then whatever's left over, it ends up composted. So I just throw it in their compost and they take what they want. Um, but winter squash, especially butternut. Butternut is my go-to for this. It's easy to grow. There's varieties that grow just about anywhere in the United States. The longest I ever saw a butternut last in a windowsill with no concerns for it whatsoever was 11 months. And when I cut it open, it was still good. It was starting to get just a little soft in some spots. And the reason I didn't wait any longer is my wife said, that thing has to go. It's been there too long. You've done, There's no need. Like, you already have ones growing this year on the vine. You don't need that anymore. So they store incredibly well. Let me tell you something, though. A lot of squash that we think of as summer squash, if you let it get big enough, will become a winter squash. Some will stay very summer squash-like and store a very long time. If you cut a zucchini, when it's about you know the size you see them in the store, and you set that thing on a shelf, it won't last very long. If you let a zucchini get like big enough to club somebody in the head with, you know, 18, 20 inches long, big around as your wrist, it will get a little pithy in the seed area, but there's a lot more flesh there. And if you... I've, I've kept zucchini for months... Not in the refrigerator. Room temperature. Uh, Trumbushino zucchini, which is a, a vining zucchini that grows as a summer or a winter squash, depending on how long you let it go. You let them get pretty big and green, and they'll store pretty well. But even off the vine, once they're at size where they'll store well, they'll slowly start to turn orange, and they'll become a winter squash in, 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 in how they store. And they'll become harder. That's a, so there's a lot of squash that you can do almost nothing with. Next up, Swiss chard. Swiss chard is like my go-to summer green. It grows straight through the summer. It doesn't bolt. And even if it does, you can start another crop in the summer and, and you know, if your old chard uh, bolts. What I find a lot of times when I go pick chard is you end up with two things from your chard. You end up with stems and leaves. You have those nice, they look like big colored celery stems. And I kind of prefer the stem over the leaf to a large degree, especially sometimes. So I'll go cut five or six big shard leaves. And some of the pictures y'all might have seen if you follow my social media, I like shard leaves that are the size of freaking elephant ears, man. They're huge. So if I cut that stalk off, and that's what I really want that night, I got two choices with that green part. I can either give it to the birds. Or maybe it will be okay to eat tomorrow, but it really starts to degrade in quality as soon as you cut it off the plant. So what I do is cut it up into pieces and throw it in a dehydrator, and I make like almost like kale chips, but it's shard chips. And those are really good, like thrown into soups and stews to fortify them with nutrients. And they, you just every time I harvest shard that I don't feel like eating the leaves that day, I just dry them and I keep adding them to jars, and I end up by the end of the season with a ton of jars full of shard leaves. And again, I use them a lot in, in, in cooking soups and stews and casseroles through the winter, and that gives that extra boost of nutrients. 
I'm probably not as good about that as I should be, and that's because in my climate I can grow shard 365 days a year. Even my an established shard plant, the freezes we get here doesn't kill them. Even sometimes the whole plant like wilts to the to the ground, it's just like all falls to the ground, looks all sad. You're like, oh, I guess you finally killed one, and the sun comes out, and two days later it's all perked up and growing again. And even when I've had kind of the outer leaves kind of go and not come back, the core grows. So I'm real spoiled with it. But if you're in a more winter climate where you can't grow your shard through the winter, don't see that as a plant that you can't dry the leaf of. And actually, the leaf of chard, if you take a recipe for kale chips, where you put a little oil on them, you bake them in the oven, put a little salt on them and stuff like that, chard makes a much better green chip than kale does, in, in my opinion anyway. It's got a little more body to it. It's got a much nicer flavor to it, and it's easier to grow for many of you than kale is. Um, I've never pickled it. I've never frozen it. I bet you it'd freeze just fine. Um, I just haven't tried it, so if you have, let me know. Next up, I just kind of threw uh, into a great big class of itself herbs, and I did that because herbs are the one that I think makes a lot more sense to sun-dry for most people than to dehydrate. I have never found it necessary to put basil or mint or thyme or rosemary or any of my herbs into my dehydrator. I actually find that when I do, the level of brittle they get is kind of beyond what I want, and they seem somewhat cooked even on the lowest settings. So what I do when I like when I get to the point toward the end of the season, I get a lot of basil, and I'm like, yeah, I want to save some basil for um, for a dried product. I just make a big bunch of it. Tie a string around it, hang it from a tree in the shade. And by our fall, you just get no problem with a really nice dry cure. Same thing with uh, mint. If I want to do mint that way, it's just so much easier. And then when it comes time, when you've got it dried, instead of like trying to take the leaves off the stems when it's you know when it's live and it's comp and it's stringy and whatever, you just wait and then you just take your hand and grab the stems and pull, and the leaves just come right off. And then you jar that up. And so I, I don't really have a better method of storing herbs for you, though I have had some things that use herbs in lacto-fermentations that are really good. Basil is actually pretty amazing in a lacto-fermentation, though I'm not big on doing it by itself. Uh, but herbs, I would go with the sun-drying method most of the time, unless you're in a really, really humid climate. And the thing about herbs is you can grow so much of it so fast. Try it. You know, long before you, this is a, a really great idea, is a lot of these preservation methods you think you're going to use, and you know you're going to get to a part of the year where you have to do a lot of it fast because you're going to run out of time. Early in the season, try it and see if it works for you. And that way you know it's going to work for you when you get to that point. Uh, berries. Berries, most berries you can just freeze. If you want to dehydrate them, a lot of berries, they come, they dehydrate really well. They make kind of like a raisin version of themselves. You know, like blueberries dehydrated are amazing. But the only way I've been able to get blueberries, for instance, to dehydrate well is to each blueberry, poke it with a toothpick. Now, if I want to make a couple trays of them for some sort of a reason, okay, I can do that, and I will. But man, I mean, sitting there poking blueberries with a toothpick, I got better things to do in my life. My number one way to preserve most berries is simply to freeze them. Blueberries I'll freeze whole, blackberries will freeze whole, strawberries you cut the, the green part off, usually cut them apart and cut them in half or cut them into quarters. And berries very much spread them out on the tray, freeze them and then put them in the bag or you get a berry clump. And I didn't really 
put this in here today, but making alcoholic infusions that are basically like liqueurs and schnapps and stuff like that is another way you can preserve things, and berries are the bomb for that. A blackberry, you know, a blackberry liqueur on a February morning, uh, especially if you get like a nice February where it's not so cold, but you're kind of craving spring, and to sip like a blackberry, a blueberry, or a strawberry liqueur uh, that afternoon, you know, as the sun's getting ready to go down, it's the warmest part of the day, and you're kind of feeling summer and spring are coming, but it's not there yet. Really, really great way to do. I've never had a fermented berry. I don't know that if any if anybody's ever done like a, a lacto-fermentation of berries. I've never really heard of it. Um, freezing has been my way to go with those. And then the last one I wanted to put in here is a plant that I think more Americans should be growing, and it's groundnut. And when I say groundnut, a lot of our European listeners would think of uh, peanuts, Groundnut is around the world what they call peanut, which is a legume. This is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a tuber that's native to America. In fact, it's called Apius Americana, and it is um, an incredible tuber that was actually grown commercially in the in North America uh, during colonial period, and it just kind of fell out of favor. And the one reason is that if you're harvesting it from the wild, it's one thing, but if you're cultivating it, it takes two years to establish it to where you can harvest, and then you need to leave some behind every year to produce the next crop. It also doesn't do well in field cultivation. It's not really a field plant. It's an edge species, and it grows mostly on creek banks. It likes moist soil and moderate shade. It likes some sun, but it likes what it really likes is the ground to be shaded and the place that the vines can climb up on to get sun. That's its nirvana, which makes it great for gardens. You take that shady spot with a trellis, and you put it up that trellis, and you you know, and you mulch, and you keep it irrigated, and and it needs it absolutely, absolutely needs moist soil, and it needs some period of time that the ground stays shaded if you're in a warm climate. And the reason it has to have that is it doesn't have any deep roots at all. And it makes it a joy for harvest, because if you know where it is, you just barely stick your hand an inch or two under the ground, you just pull them out. And the, the improved varieties, like the LSU-developed improved varieties, will get the size of a small potato. They're loaded with something called inulin, which means that they are a indigestible carbohydrate to a degree. They're very highly nutritious um, tuber, uh, great source of fiber, great source of nutrition, and they do have some usable carbohydrate, but they have also uh, what's known as a, a pre-digestive uh, pre fiber, which means that you are not going to be able to digest it in your stomach or your small intestine. It will break down and give you some caloric yield in your lower intestine, but it has almost no impact on your blood sugar. And in fact, the inulin in it will counterbalance some of the blood sugar effects of other carbohydrates. So it's a really good plant. For people that are living ketogenic lifestyles, it's a really good plant for people who are diabetic and are trying to manage diabetes. And it's easy to grow as long as you give it what it wants. And this is what I love about storing it. You don't do anything. These things grow on creek banks native in Vermont. They overwinter in shallow soil on creek banks in Vermont and Maine. So most of the United States, if, you, if they're under a mulch through the winter and you give them what they want, all you do is harvest them as you need them. If I want to have some tonight, I have tons of containers growing with them now. I can just go out there and pull some out. Almost nothing. If you do want to harvest them so that they're just easier to get to, um, all I've done with that is dry soil and a bucket. 
and fill it, fill up the bucket, you know, put a layer of them down, a little bit of soil, layer of them down, a little bit of soil, layer down, a little bit of soil. I've kept them that way in, in refrigerated environments, cold environments for two or three years, planted them and they grew. So you, if you know if you can plant something and it'll grow, it's, it's been stored to where you can use it. They are one of the ultimate survival tubers. And Native Americans relied on them very, very heavily. And they're pretty damn good when they're roasted. Uh, they make a good potato substitute, though they don't taste like a potato. They have a totally different kind of flavor characteristic. So there you go. There's 12. And just understand, there's there's always a way to preserve everything. With that, as we wrap up, I just want to kind of point out that I know some people are like, man, we need to do less gardening and more real prepping. Again, the thing you're going to need more than anything else in the coming years is to be able to feed yourself. If you can feed yourself and keep yourself sheltered, you'll figure everything else out. And you're either willing to defend what you have or you're not. And if you're willing to defend what you have, you probably have a means to do that already. And you're either in a defensible place or you're not. And if you're not in a defensible place, I would move if you can And if you say you can't, I would make damn sure that's truly the case. And, I mean, back to the guy that wrote the email that started this, he said, our country's on fire. No, our country's not on fire. Our country's not on fire. 99.9% of the, of, the, of the country is not covered in smoke, let alone flame. Very small urban areas where this shit always happens are burning. And the next time something happens, the same exact places will do this. That's what's going to happen. And it's going to happen again. 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 And it's because people don't feel they have anything to lose. And I'd love to fix it. And honestly, I think teaching people to do the type of thing we talked about today is a way to give people a stake in the world. I've been to places around the world where there's almost no impact of the state. There's like, yeah, there's a state there, and there's borders, and there's police or military or what have you, but you don't ever see any of them. And people generally don't steal shit from other people, because if you do, you get your ass beat or killed and thrown in the jungle somewhere. And the reason people will do that isn't just for themselves. The reason I've seen I've seen places where people will intervene because someone is trying to harm another person is because they feel they have a vested stake. And they feel they have a vested stake because they look around and say, What do I have? What do I control to act on it? And then it's perfectly natural for them to defend it. So With all of the stuff that's going on in the world, all the crazy things that are going on, you can either focus on all the things outside of your control because it's scary and it's like watching a horror movie, or you can focus on the things that you can put your hands on, touch, and control. And your backyard is the first place to start with that. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. If uh, you enjoyed today's show and you want to help support us, remember you can always do your online shopping at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Today's item of the day for you, um, knife. But it's not a custom, you know, woodcraft, woodscrafting knife, bushcrafting knife, or what have you. It's a simple steak knife. And I just happened to find these, these guys on sale today. It's made by J.A. Hankels, um, which is a great kind of mid-tier uh, knife supplier. And they're the what they call their original version steak knives. I have a set of these. I don't know how old they are, but Survival Podcast will be 12 years old in 19 days. 
and I know they're older than that. And they're still like brand new, and they work beautifully. They sell for about $35 bucks a set of four. Um, right now, they're on sale for $20 bucks for a, four, a set of four. So, you know, five bucks a piece. This is not a five dollar. How, how the hell this company can sell this not for five dollars a piece and not go bankrupt? I don't understand. I don't care if it's you know it's, it's German steel. I think this particular uh, is made in uh, China. It's actually manufactured in China. Um, I'd prefer it was made in Germany, but it's not. Um, but I don't care if it's made in China. I don't know how you can make this knife for five dollars, let alone sell it for five dollars. Is it? A $20 knife? No, but it's not a $5 knife, and it's for steak. Uh, the only negative reviews I've seen, I just think, are people that, that can't operate a tool on their own. They need you know professional help with anything that they do. Um, they said they're not sharp. Well, they're a serrated knife. They're like a little saw. If you move the knife back and forth, it goes through a one-inch sirloin like butter. And mine that are 12 years old, and I've never sharpened them, because you don't sharpen a knife like this. That's the whole point. Uh, still go through a sirloin like butter. Uh, the handles are still perfect. They're just fantastic. So if you've been kicking around needing some steak knives, this would be a good time to pick them up. Twenty bucks for four, really high quality. Remember how Amazon is. If you don't like them, send them back. I mean, that's why one reason I can always recommend stuff from Amazon so easily because if you don't like it, you you send it back. Uh, remember though, no matter what you buy, if you start your shopping at tspaz.com, you help us. And if you are on the Daily Mail, you'll get an announcement of the show. You'll get this uh, item of the day. And you'll get the photo of the day. I'm starting to do that now. All kinds of cool stuff going here under the homestead. And that's all that it is. You'll never hear a third-party advertisement in my Daily Mail. I'll never share your information. All you got to do is go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on subscribe, fill out a form, and you'll get the Daily Mail. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and wrap things up with our song of the day today. Song of the day today is by Russ. And it's called The Spirit of Radio. This is what uh, Neil Pert, drummer and uh, lyricist for uh, Rush, said about this song. He explained in an interview with Billboard magazine, The Spirit of Radio was actually written as a tribute to all that is good about radio, celebrating my appreciation of magical moments I'd had since childhood of hearing the right song at the right time. However, the song's celebration of the ideals of radio necessarily seemed like an attack on the reality on the formulaic mercenary programming of most radio stations with music that uh, the last of anyone's concerns. And yes, it was really ironic that such a song became a popular on radio, though it was kind of a litmus test. Some radio guys who got it could hear the song and think, that's the way it ought to be, while others, the shallow, swaggering salesman on the air, could be oblivious to the song's meaning and proudly applaud themselves, that's about me. So it's a song that everybody liked it, even if they didn't like it, I guess. And it's uh, it's definitely one of those songs that, like, as soon as you hear the intro, if you know Rush, you're like, that's Rush. Even if you had, if you somehow never heard the song before, you're like, that's about, that's that's got to be Rush. Um, just one of the great, great bands of all time. And I think it's interesting that all technologies eventually are replaced. And I think radio is on the way out. And I think radio's hold has been on people in cars uh, because, you know, there's a radio in every car. And, and I, I almost feel like there's probably at some point in history, I've never actually thought about this before, but there's some point in history where ra the radio industry incentivized the automotive industry, hey, make sure that that's a standard thing people don't have to pay extra for, at least have a radio. I bet you there's some kind of back-end deal that was made in there. But we're, we're, so many things are changing that. First of all, everybody drives around now, they got a radio in their car, but they got an iPhone or a Galaxy or whatever. 
And then they have some sort of a music service, and they can listen to music without commercials. And they can listen to their music their way, whatever they feel like at the time, without some crap that they don't want to hear, along with no commercials. And what held it beyond that, though, was talk radio. And when I started podcasting, I was it was a pretty lonely field to be in. When you told somebody you were a podcaster back in 2008, a lot of people, you had to, people that had an iPhone, you know, early generation iPhone, you still had to tell them what it was. They didn't know. And now everybody's doing it. I think radio's putting itself out of business. But it is a little bit sad for those of us that grew up when radio was the way you got your music and your information. And there was great things about it. And there were times when you were sad or you were happy and it felt like every song coming on was the one that was about what you were dealing with right then. I guess I'll kind of miss that. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast.